0: Welcome to the Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast, where we discuss all things compounding and all things concerning independent pharmacy. Now, here are your hosts, Mike Delisio, North American Sales Director, and Sebastian Dennison, Clinical Compounding Pharmacist.
1: Welcome, Compounding World. Thank you very much for listening over the course of 2021. First off, we would love to thank all of our listeners out there, the technicians, the pharmacists those that are responsible for operating independent community pharmacies and for being front lines with your amazing patients and prescribers. We couldn't thank you enough on behalf of PCCA for your commitment and for following along and being part of this journey with us. Um, It's been another amazing year for the podcast, The Mortar and Pestle. And we just wanted to thank you and and really give our appreciation. And as a result of that, we went back and listened to some of our best episodes and took snippets and some of... um just really the best dialogue that we were able to engage with, with some of our amazing guests, those that were part of the PCCA organization, and a lot of the individuals that contributed from across the industry, like NCPA, APC, and NPTA. Just thank you to everyone who was willing to be a part of the podcast. And we really hope that you enjoy this best of 2021. Thank you very much and enjoy this episode. So with that being said, something that comes to mind is that our clinical services team, our formulations team is obviously well positioned where, you know, everyone who does business with us knows that for the most part, we do have a, a tremendous amount of compounding pharmacists on staff. Stacy, I, th- I think you, you kind of bring light to the fact that compounding technicians serve an incredible purpose, not only in general, but also on behalf of the PCCA team. And, you know, having a spotlight on you today specifically being on the podcast is basically a call to attention to the fact that you you have a tremendous role, but you bring a ton of experience and you also bring a lot of passion to to what the role could be and what it really is. And, And I also call attention to the fact that it is a different type of job than a standard pharmacy technician job. So you know, to the technicians that are listening and, and those that are potentially looking at getting involved, working for another compounding pharmacy, you know, what advice would you have for them specifically that this job is very different and it does wear different hats. So with taking all that into consideration, how would you position it to someone who is looking at a different career path within compounding pharmacy?
2: I think it's an exciting role, um, especially for somebody that is, as you mentioned, passionate about helping patients um, and then really seeing everything come full circle as far as from the physician's office to uh, the pharmacist and the patients. Um, So, I mean, at the pharmacy I worked at, for instance, I started out as a delivery driver, and then I was a pharmacy technician, and then I transitioned into the compounding pharmacy technician role. So really, I was able to see all aspects of the the pharmacy, and and definitely being in the compounding pharmacy role is, is for somebody that has who's excited about career growth, um, somebody that. You know, you're always going to learn something new. I still learn something new even after 20 years. I learn something new every day. So um, just really seeing the the uniqueness and the innovation that's come over the years, um, and so anybody that's really passionate about personal and professional growth, because it's definitely a field that you are you're always you're always going to have to continue to learn, whether it be new regulatory changes, um, changes within you know specific environments within the pharmacy. Um, It it definitely is, it's exciting. It's exciting to see the changes over the years. I mean, there's been a lot of things change um, in compounding pharmacy just over the last, you know, definitely over the last 20 years, but over the last five years, for instance, there's a lot of different things that have changed. Um, So definitely just having something that, you know, you're in charge of training and documentation and, and really keeping up with, an overall knowledge of a pharmacy practice and best practices.
1: We did cover a wide array of topics, and one of them was a patient follow-up program. H- having a very solid patient follow-up program, worrying about things like drug-induced nutrient depletion, You know how you can spike um, your, your retail sales as well. Um, obviously, most pharmacies were, were switching and evolving to curbside delivery. Um, they were evolving to overall home delivery. And A lot of individuals, a lot of pharmacies were worried about their front store revenue um, because you didn't have that flow of traffic anymore. And we wanted to really call attention to it because we believe our audience base was they kind of fell within this bucket. Um, Individuals that were closing their doors, still operating as a pharmacy and not truly able to, to gain the revenue back of what they would normally have when patients were able to shop freely so you you obviously touched on a really good point. It was a segue also to the patient follow-up programs that we did with Don Ibsen and Aaron, because I I believe they they did a really good job. And at that time, we believe that there was a ton of value to also incorporate into our sales and marketing symposium, which was virtual, Bobby. So you were accurate in making that statement. And it will be virtual again this year, which is amazing because to your point, it's it's this is also a plug, and maybe a shameless plug, but to your point, a great list of speakers and great topics that are relevant to current climate and also adaptable to future situations. And and we believe future proofing yourself. I think what stands out to me is yes, you incorporated a CRM. Yes. You want to pay attention to customer experience and yes, product and customer retention was important to you. You can automate a lot of the work, but you cannot ignore the fact that there's a human component And, and I think that's probably where people will fail too, is a lot of people might listen to this podcast, rush out buy a CRM to your point, which we'll get to, and we'll talk, we'll talk to you more about that vetting stage. But a lot of people will go out buy a CRM, say, I'm great. I'm going to do a whole nurture campaign. I'm going to follow up with people via email and basically assume that the system will run autonomously from everything. You're just magically going to create the best experience possible. But what are we forgetting in all this? is the human component specifically because you are an independent community pharmacy. So, you know, you mentioned one individual that is focused on follow-up calls. I'm assuming you have a really big stake in this as well as being the business owner. So maybe from peer to peer, colleague to colleague, what advice would you give to other owners that would fall into the same bucket as you?
3: So Mike, I want to back up real quick and just remind the, the audience that, listen, anything and everything I'm doing is not unique. You guys teach us how to do this in the symposiums. You tell you, you give us the tidbits, you give us the gold nuggets. All I'm doing is bringing it all together and doing it, and that's where the gold is. It's in action, right? The action is where the gold is, and, and that's all I've done. So with Griselda, right? there's a couple of things I've done. Number one, we identify one product per month that we want to focus on, right? And so BCS Complex is one of my best, my uh, uh, great sellers, magnesium glycinate's another one, vitamin D3. Um, so we'll focus on just one pro- product, right? And for that whole month, my cashiers will focus on, and we have a scorecard a, a score on our whiteboard and we keep track of that. We keep track of daily sales per cashier. And there's a bonus at the end if they, whoever is the first person or whoever ends up with the most sales. So that's number one. You want to have a target, and you want to measure it. Can't manage what you don't measure. I love that quote. Can't manage what you don't measure. Uh, The third thing is, you know, you really want to get involved and really be part of the process. You know, you want you want the cashiers or you want the people that are part of your team to understand why they're doing it. It's not just a sale. We and, and I and I I used to be part of that mindset that it was hey man I'm selling something. It's a totally different mindset, and a lot of it comes down to mindset. Is we are actually helping people feel better, and if we can convince our our cashiers and our technicians that we're doing that, which is what we're doing, the sale is much easier. A lot of my cashiers initially were scared to sell because man it's just something else I got to add on. There's a line. There's, a, you know, everybody's coming to the drive-thru. Our lobby's closed, but it's mindset, man. If, if they say they're not feeling good, hey, that's an opportunity to have a conversation with them. Have you thought about B6 Complex? It's one of the number one products that we sell. Dr. Bobby Moniz recommends it. And so it's just that mindset. We have an opportunity every day with every patient to help them. It's that mindset that we have to have. And that's the mindset we have to bake into our employees so that we can be successful. So that one is targeting and two is having mindset really to be successful. Does that make sense?
4: I mean, that's, that's me. just the real critical piece about that. Um, It's your standard magic mouthwash. I don't remember the ingredients exactly. I believe it's got lidocaine, uh, diphenhydramine, nystatin. Um, Those are the three that I recall just off the top of my head, Uh, but it's a pretty standard um, formula.
5: And I think that it's important to note that this is the bridge between dentistry and oncology because the radiation burns, the mucositis, that's common. One of the most common side effects of chemotherapy treatment. All of a sudden it's like the the dentists are seeing these these issues and they're like, are you getting chemotherapy? And they're like, oh, magic mouthwash for everyone. And yeah. we can do better. And it's, it's kind of a unique sure. opportunity, especially when you, you already know your patient population that's
1: mm-hmm.
5: had a diagnosis of cancer and you can head that off of the past much earlier as a recommendation. Hey, we know you're going to get a magic mouthwash. wash. Here's an opportunity to do something better. Let me talk to your doctor before it gets bad. And that's, right. that's one of the, probably the biggest innovations that I've seen with, with mucolox is mm-hmm. those patient populations that are, that are, that are, willing to abandon their chemotherapeutics because they're just their mouth hurts too much and they can't Mm -hmm. eat and they're like you know (laughs) everyone's got to live their life and everyone's got their different different drivers but but when you take away someone's ability to eat and drink and even enjoy anything it's huge so
4: yeah it is hard when we get those calls about like grade three and grade four uh mucositis when we know we could have prevented that i mean and they're like you said not able to eat or drink um you know, I think in most cases, we, we do have the tools to help prevent that uh, from even getting that bad. But if it is that bad, then we've got some alternatives for that as well. Um, like there was a study using ketamine in grade three and four, uh, which showed um, they, the patients that used it got better sleep than they did with just a pure lidocaine.
1: I, I think that's just a great example of how we were aware of, you know, the major principles or fundamentals that we abide by on a daily basis and just being very, I guess, transparent in the creation of what that was and making sure that every employee understands what those principles are. And I think that's probably the easiest starting point is, you know, how do you want to be defined and what do you believe defines your role in patient care and then being cognizant of it and, you know, to, To Whitney's point. Is it all over our walls? Yes. Does it have to be? No, but you could still work through it on a daily basis and remind your employees of what's important. And and no matter how small you are, even if you're a group of four individuals or seven individuals working in a pharmacy, you know, as a business owner, these are still major things and I'm sure everybody has discussed. Unfortunately, they've probably never put a label onto it to say, oh, it's a fundamental of who we are or it's part of our culture it's, it's just being more intentional about it. And I think that's probably the easiest starting point. I think the biggest takeaway we can leave for our listeners is don't go out and hire a third party company and feel that, you know, you need to make all this major investment tomorrow, just sit down, think and even get the collaboration from your team no. to, to kind of walk through it, to decide on what is really important to everybody there. And, even if it's just a straight team meeting, it's that's your easiest starting point. You don't, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have to dedicate or create a whole department around it. It could evolve to that point if that is important to you, um, and if that's what you truly believe in. But I think just being aware, intentional, and creating at least the, the foundation for that is so incredibly important. And, and Michael, you said it best: is is really. You called light into what is important for us and taking time for ourselves. And here, here I am saying, you know, do another Zoom meeting at night after we're all on uh, eight or nine (laughs) Zoom hours meetings a day. And but it, it is true in the pharmacy space; these are frontline healthcare professionals who, who are not necessarily being overwhelmed with Zoom. There's a completely different obstacle or challenge in front of them, and it's truly navigating patient care. So. Being My, cognizant of that as well is, is so important.
6: Yeah, I think that you, I mean, collaboration is huge. What you just said, that this is not one person saying, hey, this is what our culture is and you guys are all going to live by it. Right. The team coming together and you know, and we did the same thing. We had multiple employees or team members in a room. What are our core values? What do you guys think they are? And it got, I mean, there's tons and it got brought down to where it is. Um, but I don't think, I mean, I think even as simple as, Hey, I'm going to bring you guys Starbucks in the morning, just showing that you care, um, that you truly care about them, I think is very important. And then, I mean, it'll just happen
2: naturally as well.
7: Yeah. And I thought about something you said, Mike, gave me uh, just a thought about just a simple placard on the wall. So we have our PCCA principles and our core values listed at like several places throughout the uh, headquarters, but One of the things you could do is, hey, go to Kinko's. Once you sit down and have that collaboration that Whitney just mentioned, define, it doesn't have to be a full list of core values or principles, maybe you're not there yet, maybe you're not able to fully articulate it like that at this Mm -hmm. stage, but maybe think about a mission statement or a values statement that you could put on a placard, take it to Kinko's, or is there even still a Kinko's? (laughs) (laughs) This is still a thing. take it to whomever you get print I think that's print.
4: who it is as <laughs> Etsy. Oh, it'd be so fancy. Oh yes,
7: you could do it uh, from Etsy. And just have it placed on that placard, put it on the wall uh, and have a team meeting about it. Say, hey, we've collaborated, we've met, we narrowed down this vision statement. We are, you know, we're about patient care, patient access to personalized medicine. We form, you know, we serve a critical uh, function in our community. And, you know, whatever it is that that values or mission statement is, put it on the wall, have your staff or whether it's two or 200 people sit around and or stand around and, and have a couple of people volunteer. What does this mission or value statement mean to you? How did you live out this mission statement last week? What is your uh, favorite interaction or what interaction was most meaningful or impactful to you with a patient, you know, in the last month, whatever it is get people talking about it, get it at the front of people's minds. Because again, the work that our members do in their pharmacies is so important. I think that just keeping those discussions going and remembering that culture, remembering that purpose will go a long way towards keeping people engaged. People are getting more sedentary
5: with working at home, which is crazier because you would think like, oh, this is an opportunity to optimize your office space. No, 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 no. People are actually going into smaller and smaller spaces and doing less and less during this time. The exercise component always comes along, but where I find it's also getting really cool is with our compounding world, is we're not just the supplementation, but we're also starting to dive into utilization of some of these cutting edge medication ideas, kind of getting ahead of the treatment. But we're also looking at that sort of functional medicine approach to the treatment protocols of these long haulers, as well as people who are worried about prevention. So, you know, we've got some pretty cool formulas in there. I like Life is Good formula with the melatonin, naltrexone, oxytocin, kind of help people with all of it. We've got a lot of uh, weight management formulas that you can tie into with nutrition, with compounding opportunities, um, utilization of some pretty cool medications appropriately dosed based upon a doctor's assessment. So, Nat, um, when you're sitting there, and because you, you're, you're probably looking at this with a slightly different lens than I am, what would you make for recommendation for someone today? Like, we're, we're starting, like, we're waiting for our vaccinations. We're waiting for our next steps. We're, we're seeing sort of this shift, and people are starting to ask the questions of me, and I'm, I'm asking you, what would you do for the next three months until you get your vaccination? How would you sort of handle this? And what are some of your key takeaways? And how can we get our compounders out there to make sure our patients, our, our shared patients, are gonna be maximized in that immune cell uh, function?
0: Well, hey, thanks. I, I, I think that, um, first off, the lifestyle component we've just been talking about, um, you know, making sure that we control our diet and that we get some exercise is, and sleep, right? are keys, big, big, big keys. And if you're looking at maybe putting together some sort of a, um, like, a, not really a protocol, but a, a, a list of potential supplements, which I, I take supplements every day, by the way. I mean, I, 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 <laughs> I take D3 every day. I take ascorbic acid or ascorbate every day. I take zinc every day with copper in it. I take um, EGCG every day. I take um, uh, quercetin every day. I take. I mean, the the list of things that I take on a daily basis is is probably big compared to what a lot of people take. But you know, um, I, I'm not 18 anymore, you know and I mean, I'm I'm at that age category where I could you know be considered higher risk just based on my age, if nothing else, right? So um, I, I think that um, having that sort of a supplement program in place for for yourself and all your patients. Uh, you, and I don't feel bad about recommending these things. People have asked me, Nat, what do you recommend? I tell them exactly what I take and why I take it and, and why I think it's important to maintain these things because if you can take enough antioxidants and you can take enough vitamin D, you can take enough ascorbate, you can keep your immune system in a much better position to be able to fight the fight. But I think the supplements are a big, big piece of what keeps people, uh, your immune system up and above board. And, and that's something that as, as a pharmacy owner, you know, I would be having those those just dis, those displayed in my store. If you if your front end is open, and most people's front ends are open, uh, I would have uh, something on your website about you know potential uh, supplements that could could be beneficial for immune support. Um, you know, if you were going to tie this in with some sort of a functional medicine test, you know where you're going to do micronutrient testing and you could actually show the patients what they're deficient in, that kind of a program could be very, very beneficial. He, you know, listen, let me do this test on you. We'll do this, this blood test and we'll show you exactly which nutrients you're missing. It's not guesswork when you do that. So you can show them, uh, you know, which minerals, which uh, nutrients they're, they need more of and then provide that to them in a, in a sensible way with quality products. So I think, uh, you know, Wellness Works is on the menu. Uh, a lot of other quality supplement programs are out there. I mean, I, I, you know, it's, you always want to keep a variety of things on board. I think uh, supplement sales are a great, great ancillary part of pharmacy, uh, especially compounding pharmacy. Because I, when I did consults with patients and I did consults every day, uh, nutritional recommendations were always a part of that consultation recommendation. So um, even for wound care, weight loss, you know, uh, derm, anything, there's always a nutritional component to any category. I think that you're looking at in medicine, and, and it's a great add-on for compounders to, to try to add into their repertoire and uh, to put onto the, uh, the, you know, just something that their, their business can offer to their patients on a regular basis.
1: It was also just interesting for me to know personally, um, in terms of, you know, what is a catalyst for new member growth? What's a catalyst for, for donations, or et cetera, or contributions to the Alliance? because it almost feels like in, in my history, in this industry, it's been close to 20 years. And I, I felt like whenever there's been something significant, it, it appears that the Alliance or formerly IACP was more on everybody's radar. So <clears throat> it almost sounds as if that there, there are extra channels like the compounding pharmacy group that exists on Facebook. Uh, we'll say that that's very, one of the, the, the many, uh, channels that do exist in the marketplace. You know, is there anything else that you could recommend to our listeners just to learn more about what initiatives are in place for you? And and I feel like this is just teeing up going back to your website, getting back to what the um, Alliance is doing to have a very good understanding that, you know, time is of the essence and we're in a very critical stage, especially right now, hearing also in terms of what are what your membership base is truly active on, if that makes any sense?
8: No, it does it, it, it does. And let me just uh, step back a bit to to add a couple of things. Um, of the eight hundred and eighty one thousand dollars that we've raised on the the compounded hormones media campaign, I would say probably a tenth of that came from non-member compounders. I hadn't figured those folks out yet. They must like what we're doing in terms of compounded hormones, but for whatever reason uh, are not ha- have not yet made the decision to, um, to become our members. The other thing that um, I will share as a bit of a trial balloon, our board of directors is considering a different membership model for the organization. We have uh, always been an individual membership model. So uh, Mike, if you join APC, you're joining as Mike, you're not joining as PCCA. Um, We are contemplating the idea of creating a company membership. We're in a, and this is really for compounding pharmacies and for 503b outsourcing facilities. You guys are corporate supporters, so it's a little different for for you guys. But uh, a member uh, pharmacy uh, or or the membership would be at the pharmacy level. So let's say Joe Navarra on Long Island, member of my board of directors. Joe would not join as Joe. Joe would join as his pharmacy and every one of his employees would be our members. They would get all the benefits of membership. Um, We would get the benefit of additional dues dollars because a company membership would allow us to charge a higher dues rate and we would get the benefit of representing more voices when we go to Capitol Hill, when we go to state legislatures, um, uh, et cetera. So those are two things I think worth mentioning. Decision hasn't been made yet. We're creating the model. Uh, the board will take it up again in June, and hopefully we'll have a decision uh, about what that what that might look like. But I, I think it's an important thing. You mentioned how to know what we're doing. If you're a member of the organization, you get our Friday e newsletter, Compounding Connections, and we do everything we can. To, maybe we tell you more than you need to know, but we, uh, we tell you everything we think you need to know um, about pharmacy compounding each week. Our website, particularly under the advocacy tab, is a wealth of information about our policy positions, um, anything you need to know, if you want to uh, you invite your member of Congress to come to your, to, your, to your pharmacy or outsourcing facility, and by the way, I would urge you to do that. It's a great way to have interaction with an elected official. Um, we've got resources on there to help you do that. Talking points, how to schedule the meeting, how to um, uh, engage uh, your local newspaper so that there are photographs in the paper and all of that sort of stuff. You'll find just tons and tons of good information on our website.
5: I guess as a, as a pharmacist, do you help develop tools to like, you're asking questions, what other specific tools that they can pick up and use to discover this information? Um, and Is CPMS kind of got a, a, a sort of like here, here's where we can do it. And the research pieces are, are a little bit easier because that's, that's effectively what people find difficult about the market research is, I don't have time. I don't know where to look. I don't have an MBA. What, what are you doing to me? So. Well, well, if they haven't
9: opened yet, then they should certainly have the time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you're right. Then, then, then it's a little bit more difficult. You know, years ago, when even when I first started this, the, the data wasn't always readily available. But, you know, thanks to, uh, to Google and, and a lot of uh, just websites that are out there, this, ad, this data is actually pretty easy. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a site called citydata.com. A lot of these numbers, you, you know, you can get the population density, you get median household income, you can get educational background. You can really build a lot of what you have on the, on the discipline just around that. As far as re- finding out well, which doctors in your area, the one that I use for forever and ever was called healthgrades.com. Basically put in a zip code and it will uh, tell you all the doctors in the area and you can specify uh, areas of practice, OBGYN, vet, whatever it is. So this, this stuff is readily available. Um, you know, you, People used to pay for this data. They would, they would you know, find some kind of third party that's harvested the data and, and they would buy it from them. The problem is, and people still do, and all the time I get people that have done that that says this data is old and you know, it's, it's not relevant anymore. Um, and it's because people just don't update it that often. So for, for as far as I'm concerned, just doing the manual work uh, using the internet and google and all of these other uh, sites i i I think it's a lot easier than you would think
1: i gotta ask the both of you this question because something comes to mind and we were talking about this right before we started recording the podcast we have or we developed anhydrous bases before quote unquote anhydrous was a thing and was that a precursor to what was to come because you know, looking at things like Prakash or Spirowash, to your point, yeah. those bases were developed well, almost a decade ago now. Oh, Probably it seems like yesterday, but ten years ago was that anhydrous that lipoderm, lipoderm. right and hydros lipoderm MBK gelatin, correct. Mm. You know, thinking outside the world of VersaBase or traditional lipoderm, did that help the the research, the development, <clears throat> the innovation when there was a regulatory or a practical need to come out with bases like W06, permeate, VersaBase Anhydrous HRT. You know, those are some of our new newer anhydrous, anhydrous bases, obviously a Lodge anhydrous. being one of them as well. So it almost feels like the last four or five years we've come up with a whole bunch of of new technology, but there again, a lot of it may have already been created a decade ago. So was this on your radar, Daniel? Was this something that you identified? Besides the regulatory need, like I mentioned, was it something that you felt ready for and if it wasn't for those
10: bases we wouldn't be where we are today i i would love to say yes like i'm a i don't know like 10 no years profit, of <laughs> <a> profit. <laughs> no no but <laughs> no no i i think it, some base is just born for for a reason like anhydrous lipoderm born anhydrous because that time was some ingredients like a, uh, for to work with autism and that need to be anhydrous that is the idea behind of the lipoderm and anhydrous uh, and uh, what happened was that the technology behind of those products right now, it's much advanced than before. Look, we are talking about cars. And if you look at uh, 10 years, you, 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 Sebastian, you told me in 10 years, probably if we need to buy a car with gas, it's now the time. Because probably in 10 to 20 years, you're going to be very difficult to find. That's the technologies that have advanced so, so quick. It's the same thing for us for... For the topical, it's, it's always something happened that changed the whole structure for us to develop something special or high advanced in technology. If you look for a hydros lipoderm to the permeate example, or Versa based on hydros, they are totally different. You can see the feel, even though the they can see the the, the efficacy. You can see everything is is more advanced and more uh, towards to what we want. I think that's the key now. Other bases is just born because there's a need in the market at time that we, we develop for specific for that needs. But the anhydrous, we start seeing, uh, and I we started to have this conversation a few years ago, this is that is coming, and I think you need to be prepared for. And that was the, the kind of the idea of the design line for anhydrous. You
11: also have to realize that water activity is not a new concept. You know, yeah. uh, low water activity formulations is not something that's unique to the recent years within compounding. It's, it's been around for a long time. The food industry, this has been a really big thing in their world because, I mean, it makes sense when you think about it, um, you know, breads and what you know, just, all the foods that we eat. And if you can reduce the water activity, you know, dehydrated foods, you know, that's, you know, they, they keep forever and that's, well, well there's a reason for that. Yeah. Um, so it, In the pharmaceutical industry, it's well known that, uh, stability and, and preserving those products are, are, are much, much better when you, you, you have lower water activity. So, yeah, and we, and that, that, that's, and for many years, even before the, the, this recent trend in our, in our industry, cosmetic mm -hmm. world, we see, we saw a lot of, uh, interest and desire in anhydrous approaches or uh, ingredients that can be used in a formulation that it's an aqueous formulation, but they reduce the water activity to improve the efficacy of the preservatives that are there so they can use lower concentrations of those preservatives you know, some of the 1-2 the, the, you know, alkane diols and all, those. and all that kind of stuff.
10: And, and one of the things interesting is, in cosmetic, especially in cosmetic marketing, they are talking uh, about uh, the use of water. And they try to, the marketing they are using, it's like, let's reduce, let's marketing, okay, we're not using too much water, this is good for the the earth, uh, mm-hmm. is good for the, 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 the environment, and the water preservation, and this is also something that you need to think, is is when you develop a product with water, how much water we, we, we use for that particular one. And different than if you don't use water. It's interesting because last year, cause of some cosmetic companies is starting looking up for anhydrous, but they are marketing about the environmental. Yeah, are yeah, not using water. There's the water preservation. Yeah.
11: yeah, This is interesting. And people who have done a lot of formulating, especially with aqueous preparations, understand in light of the, the global trends about the acceptability of certain preservatives, like no one wants parabens, no one wants formaldehyde donors, nobody, mm, nothing. you know, this, this, this. You go down the list and it becomes increasingly more difficult to preserve a preparation yeah. with, you know, preservatives that, that people would be okay with whether it be in environmental working groups or dermatologists because of sensitivities, or there's just this ongoing, uh, a trend to try to re- reduce the concentrations of, of, preservatives or, or just eliminate certain preservatives for whatever reason, you know, yeah. this is uh, and, and it's, it's, it's a challenge. I mean, it, it's legit a challenge. And you know, it, it you sort of gloss over pr- preservation, at least I, I used to, you know, like, okay, those are just preservatives. You know, this is just like a minor, it's like such a minor part of the formula. It's there, they're always in there at low concentrations and you don't really, uh, I think some. a lot of people just don't give it a lot of thought, but man, is it a challenge? I mean, it, it's a science in and of itself. And, and I know Daniel spent many an hour in the lab you know, looking at different preservative systems. Yeah and all the USP 51 antimicrobial effectiveness testing that we've, we've done on products that we commercialized and products we didn't commercialize, mm-hmm. uh, just because, gosh, you know, just trying to get the right blend. So it, it's, it's a tough space. And so low water activity, anhydrous preparations, you don't have the, the need for preservatives. So it, it eliminates that, that whole variable, which for those on, in the lab and who are involved in formulating, it's a challenge these days. Mm-hmm. It's really, really tough.
1: It kind of lends and goes back into, all right, well, this is an individual who went through pharmacy school, did her MBA, is about to open up a compounding pharmacy, all before the age of 30. And that's a lot. It's mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah, but exactly. you, I think if there's any takeaway for our audience to observe is that there's a progression um, that could be the common denominator focused around passion. And then at the same time, there's also an evolution of learning and what else needs to be applied or the seeking of resources. Mm -hmm. So something that I would probably encourage is, you know, the seeking of resources, thinking about Mm. you connecting with compounding pharmacies. What were some of your biggest takeaways in that?
12: Yeah, I think this is huge for me because I, I was pretty shy. I was pretty timid. I knew I wanted to, you know, start a pharmacy. But how? I mean, gosh, you start... Googling it. And how do, how do you open a pharmacy? I mean, for me, when you reach out to a pharmacist that is not in your area, they are willing to share. They want you to succeed. They're willing to share and they're excited. You know, genuinely having 12 cheerleaders on my side that want me to succeed is awesome. So the takeaway for me is I don't think there was one pharmacist that I had reached out to that didn't give me a tidbit. So, you know, I will continue to connect and stay connected.
1: It's a pretty cool community.
12: Yeah. It's awesome. Um,
1: it's a community that exists, but because of, I'm not going to call it geographic boundary because you're in Montana, you connected with someone in Arizona, you're not shipping to that state. Right. They're not shipping right. it to your state. Right. In reality, this is simply, we want to make sure that you're successful. And I think one of the cool things uh, from our point of view as well, and we've mentioned it in several podcasts, talking about international or international seminar and having people come here all together as a community. We, I felt like we lost that last year because of everything going on and not being able to do a live event of that magnitude. This year I have, I'm not gonna make a guarantee, but it, it looks good. I, I really hope that we're gonna be in a position to do a live event and whatever that, however, whenever that happens, whether it's this year or next year, we're gonna be back in that place. Um, but I think, especially from some of the members that you connected with, these are individuals that have come here shared with others. And at one point we're brand new. Right. I think that's what everybody forgets. There's a starting point for every pharmacist, for every member. Yeah. We do have member number one that joined 40 years ago. This is our 40th year <laughs> anniversary. But the reality is, um, it's been constant evolution of growth for us as well. And everybody will always credit their predecessors, their mentors.
12: Right. Yep.
1: Yeah. So I, I, <laughs> I think what you did, like I said, I commend you for it because I can't believe, you know, you took it upon yourself. Most people do not do that level of market research. They're basically thinking inside the box. And then what I'm probably, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but I'll let you chime in. From a financial perspective, did you get a lot of feedback as well in terms of profitability or operational efficiency, expense, you know, all of the things that you need to take into consideration for your business plan? Did you get any help with that?
12: Yeah, I think not only gaining feedback on that side of things, but truly being um, almost like quizzed, you know, so so what is your what is your profit on this product going to be? What is and when you're quizzed on something by somebody that you really look up to, boy, do you research it? You know, so almost being questioned um, yourself was was good for me um, to kind of dive a little deeper. And so everybody was very helpful and very willing to share, too. So,
1: yeah. And yeah. Um... You know, the financial viability portion is obviously extremely important. Either somebody is an established business Mm -hmm. and they're looking at adding compounding to that. Mm -hmm. But something that you and I spoke of was you're opening a pharmacy from scratch Mm -hmm. and starting compounding and customized medications at the exact same time. Did that add complexity to it or was it just maybe a benefit or an add-on that you believed helped you out on this journey?
12: Um, I think for me, it was kind of, I, I viewed it as one piece. Um, it probably added complexity, but I can't really speak otherwise because I um, I, I don't know what it would be like. Um, mm-hmm. The biggest thing for me is we decided to not take insurance. We are going to be cash only. And um, that almost simplified it a little bit um, to just the fact that there was one less thing to put on your plate, which I think is key and very helpful in the process.
1: So at this point, you know, focusing on, Certain prescribers, disease states—that's something that's still also evolving as well. Correct.
12: Yeah, right. And I think kind of breaking it down. The I was given this advice and breaking it down to where you have three or four weeks where you just focus on vet and you just focus on vet marketing because for me it was pretty overwhelming. I mean, where do you start? Who do you target? You know, do you hit? Do you do it by area? Do you do it by region? So, and then the next week, focus on derm and really educate yourself and. I usually spend a couple days educating myself and then gathering my market materials and then reaching out, you know, and kind of just breaking it down that way has really helped me. It's a tidbit that I was given that I really took it and ran with it.
1: I don't want to underestimate the role in all this, but it's like as an observer, if I take myself outside of the pharmacy world and just listen to this conversation, th- this had a massive implication on immunizations overall over the last what six months is my assumption is there a way to to estimate and give our audience a better understanding of the sheer numbers of technicians that were involved in this type of program
3: i do not have that data with me right now so i don't i don't want to misspeak but i can tell you with certainty that a significant percentage, if not a majority, right. of the immunizations that have been administered over the last six months in the US have come from newly qualified and trained pharmacy technicians. The numbers simply did not add up. There's no way that we physically could hit these numbers if we hadn't gone there.
1: And I, I can share- That's so
3: powerful.
13: Yeah. And I can share. It's not just even from the community setting. It's from the government setting as well. Um, Mike, I'm sure FEMA reached out to you as well. They reached out to me. I'm currently just waiting my location to be deployed, you know, and and they're asking for technicians to go anywhere across the country for two weeks at a time to basically just give vaccines eight hours a day, two weeks at a time, you know, and, and because that's what they need. And they realize that they're that we have, you know, that, that service that we can contribute to getting on the other side of this pandemic. So huge opportunity.
5: It, it, it's crazy because it's actually one of the bigger questions that we're getting through clinical services and through multiple streams is people are facing down pretty significant changes in their architecture of their pharmacy. Um, everything from, I've got to upgrade because We haven't changed in five years, 10 years, and we know that there's changes coming within Mm -hmm. the um, state board level. But more importantly, we're also seeing changes at the federal FDA level with this FDA in sanitary conditions document and guidance. And then it's also affecting our industry at a higher level um, for all of the suppliers, for everything that we do, kind of at PCCA and then down to the pharmacy. And so it would probably be it would probably serve everyone a little bit better if if everyone kind of understands what we're doing here first and what we've been going through for the last four years and how it kind of rolls back into pharmacies and why it's so important for everyone to be kind of understanding a lot of terminology and what's actually required around construction.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a great point. You know, and yeah, our journey potentially has been even longer than that. Um, the last four years, more specific or related directly to modular wall systems, also known as clean rooms. I think the reality is it's all based on regulation. To your point, you know, in sanitary conditions being the the ultimate factor and the reason why individuals have looked at a modular wall system specifically for compounding either, you know, non-sterile hazardous, non-sterile non-hazardous. So in reference to USP, USP 795, USP 800, And then also what are the implications for USP 797 and 800 when we're looking at sterile hazardous or sterile non-hazardous. So you know four different types of compounding this is relating to the US market and in terms of what I'm referencing to USP and then also to our Canadian audience is that we have we got to take our hat off and then have conversations with Canadian pharmacists and talk about what NAPRA guidelines and why they are so specific um, so this is going to be a North American conversation because I have found myself in, my, I would not call myself an expert, but I found myself in an invested role with pharmacists north of the border when they are looking at upgrade, looking at renovation, looking at startup application, and then i am got to put my USP hat back on when we start talking about the, the implications for insanitary conditions south of the border. Conveniently, they overlap. They are very, very similar. Um, but, yeah, let's, let's kind of talk about, you know, where someone starts. What are the important considerations when looking at the implementation of a modular wall system? And the most important thing, Seb, is really the design. Um, before, you obviously need to have a very firm understanding on guidelines and what is going to be required by state board, by provincial guidance in regards to our individuals north of the border, uh, but truly is understand the guidelines. There's no other way to actually look at it. Now at the same time, it's taking a look at your pharmacy space and that's why I mentioned that design is so important. It's having a very firm understanding of what the footprint of your labs will look like and how much space do you have. The, the reason why design is also important, it's, it, and this is really relevant to probably the questions that you get in clinical services, but that dovetails into workflow. So what is your volume? How many scripts are you performing on a daily basis? Who are your personnel? How many workstations do you plan on having? Um, this is all great. I, I, I've seen examples of people that are trying to build a hazardous area for non-sterile compounding that is three times the size of their non-sterile, non-hazardous environment. So when we talk about the monographs, let's say, it's comparing 795 versus 800 from a non-sterile application. And then my first question is, what represents more of your compounding scripts? And then I find out that they're doing three times the amount non-hazardous. So I always wonder, why on earth are you trying to build such a big hazardous lab? Um, And that's just providing professional guidance because You are now bringing in implications of the external ventilation of air. You are now moving cubic feet of air, air exchange of 12 times an hour, maintaining a pressure differential of 0.01 to 0.03, of negative inches water column differential. So now there's a whole bunch of other considerations that now potentially bring in a mechanical engineer to to kind of work through all that. I want to start off with the design because these are all really important concepts. And, you know, if sterile is part of your world, do you want to build a modular wall system for the purpose of having a clean room, both from a gowning, ante and buffer area and taking those room considerations um, in place before you move forward with the project? And what is your non-sterile room going to look like? And I think that's why I keep on coming back to the terminology of modular wall system versus clean room is that yes, ideally in a a sterile world, you are physically building a clean room within a clean air environment. However, from a non-sterile point of view, the word clean room always comes up because it's a modular wall system. But essentially what you are physically building is a segregated lab from your current environment to perform non-sterile compounding activities that is isolated from the rest of the pharmacy. From an outsider's point of view, there's a a huge complexity here. Knowing the knowledge that was imparted to you from Lawson and the knowledge that you also possessed and now the responsibility of establishing, enhancing a flavoring guide to what it is today, where were the biggest challenges? Because this is obviously complex. You've dedicated a huge part of your professional career to flavoring. And it, I I hate to say it from an outsider's point of view, it sounds basic. Mm -hmm. So where are there so many different complexities and where was things more difficult um specifically building on the work that you had done with lawson etc
13: yes definitely flavor is very different than everything else and people really don't have an idea it sounds so simple you're right just add some chocolate syrup oh fine great Mm -hmm. we have a flavor here it's not and the flavor itself is so complex because when lawson really gave me this area to continue working I start thinking, okay, now what I can do to improve? What is now? What else do we have around the world? So I start doing seminars around uh, outside our our scope, our compounding scope. I went to food industry. You know, they know you know what what they are doing, and maybe I can get one or two things to, add to our day by day work. So I learn on this process. First of all, two, one flavor has so many organic chemistry together to mm-hmm. have a taste, it's amazing, I smell. So just there is a complexity so big. And uh, if you don't understand the flavor itself, you don't understand why your formula is not working. Sometimes we have so many calls, right, Seb, uh, Sebastian, about, oh. you know, for, formula is turning brown, it's precipitating, and we go all around everything else. We never remember the flavor. And sometimes the flavor is the only ingredient that's causing all the problem. So after these years, I started searching more about the flavor ingredients. And I found out that some flavors, like I found out studying that concentrate flavors contain citric acid. I was like, huh, that's it. That's why I cannot use the nomeprosol formulas. I need a high pH. Flavor is super low pH. It precipitates. So we learn. We tested. Oh, boom, it is a problem. We change the flavor. We resolved. So, yes, um, I, I search a lot and I study uh, the flavors individually. So for, for me to bring the flavor to BCC is a big step. I don't know, if Sebastian has more to add. He sh- I'm sure he does.
5: I was going to say the worst case scenario for any compounder is to hand out a 65 $75 multi-ingredient cream and have it come back in three to five days and it's, it's broken or it's oxidized or it's failed completely. And now the patient's looking at you being like, I just spent $75, remake it. And then now you're doing those investigations, but now you're also losing that relationship. Worse yet is if you never hear back from that patient because it failed. And then they go back to the, the practitioner and the practitioner goes, yeah, don't, we're going to change. We're going to change tech. We're going to change pharmacies. We're going to change. And it, it's easily resolved by just making better choices at the beginning. So I a hundred percent agree with you, Renell. And I cannot tell you how many times I had other people's creams in my pharmacy saying, can you fix this? We're like, eh, we can't fix it, but we can make it better. And that that was the key piece. And the patients were really happy to spend the money. It's their face. It's their face. And when they're looking at their face, they're like, yeah, I can spend a little bit or I can spend enough to make it work and, and do it right. So I, I'm just I'm just thinking about all those interactions I had and I'm like, oh, so bad. So.
6: Well, and it's it's true too, especially now with everybody on Zoom. Like you know, people dress from the waist up, and like their face is super important because it's on you know it's on camera all the time. <laughs> so.
5: Oh yeah, they take off their mask, and you're like, oh, what's going on there? But yeah, and Zoom yeah. And people are people are are really honestly they're putting their best face forward. So there's a lot more emphasis on it. Interesting, interesting. So, um, what, what else are you seeing? Like, I, like I'm thinking about all the bleaching aspects and the skin lightening, but I know that there's some other ones out there that people are, are, haven't necessarily heard about the same way that we're hearing about it because we're hearing kind of the odd ones. So what else are you seeing in the field of dermatology that's interesting to you that you're, that you're excited about or getting excited
0: about?
6: Yeah, I think um, probably the other thing is may seem simple to people, but acne um, because we see acne all the way from young teenage people all the way up to postmenopausal um, are getting acne, and now with the increased mask wearing, there is a lot more acne, and people really don't know what to do. They've tried over the counter items, and this is where a compounder can really come in. Evaluate: Hey, what's worked for you? What hasn't worked for you? Let's combine different things. Let's use some things that are not available and let's get your skin really healthy. So kind of some of the things that I see um, work really well in acne patients. So I don't like to use antibiotics if I can get around it. Um, That's kind of a last resort for me. I feel like that's the standard go-to for a lot of physicians. And so I wanna be different and I wanna do something unique for them. Um, I find benzoyl peroxide is excellent for helping with acne. Most patients get some help with benzoyl peroxide, but maybe they've tried it and it wasn't in combination with anything else, or maybe it's been years since they've done it. And so I really do like to try to add benzoyl peroxide if that's something that I think will work for them. Um, Trentinoin is awesome. I have a lot of people trying to combine benzoyl peroxide and tretinoin, which seems like a great idea. But tretinoin is very sensitive to oxidation and benzoyl peroxide is a very strong oxidizer. So those two don't go together. Um, it's kind of like oil and water. We, we can't put those together, but there's other things we can do. In the postmenopausal or the menopausal range, I have a lot of patients with acne um, and, you know, they're already going through all these changes, you know, physically, mentally, and now their face is breaking out and it's just sometimes the last straw for them. And spiralactone can be excellent for these postmenopausal women. Um, so just being able to put that in a cream that they put on their face um, is a really good option for them. They get, they get, you know, clearing up of their acne. We can put it in a nice base. We have clarifying base that has an avocado extract. Love clarifying base. I use it every morning as my moisturizer. It's just a really great all-over moisturization base. It's not gonna be too oily and it holds these active ingredients really well. You know, earlier we were talking about hydroquinone being a tricky chemical, Benzyl peroxide is a tricky chemical. Um, And so benzyl peroxide does really well in clarifying base. It's not very problematic in there. We have tons of formulations with it in there. We know that it's stable and that it works. In addition to just those active ingredients, I think pharmacists can be such a great source for patients dealing with acne In terms of lifestyle modifications, simple things like drinking more water makes a huge difference in your skin, Um, decreasing your stress. You know, in this day and age, stress is just so rampant that we can help them with stress modifications, you know, and then the one other trick I have up my sleeve for acne is just like a scrub, a salicylic acid scrub. The pharmacy can make this. Um, It's just a really good exfoliating um, option for patients, and I think it's often forgotten. So usually, you know, we do a cleanser, we do a good um, salicylic acid scrub that they can just do in the shower, and then we have our compounded cream. And I've had excellent results with that regimen. It's simple, it works for most patients, and it does um, a really great job at alleviating the acne. And if that regimen doesn't, there's a bunch of things that we can add and tweak and tailor it for our patients. But acne is a really great area. I think some dermatologists just kind of get stuck and patients don't want to take these oral medications. And there's so many things that we can do topically to help our patients um, get rid of the acne.
1: Well, Compounding World, that was the very best of 2021. As I said when we kicked off this great episode, thank you for your commitment. Thank you for subscribing. Thanks for tuning in every two weeks to listen to what is happening on the front lines of compounding in our marketplace. It is a true pleasure that I get to host this podcast. We want to wish you a very happy new year and happy holidays and all the best for 2022. We hope that you stay with us next year and we have amazing things to come. We do hope that you tune in. All the best to you, your pharmacy staff for 2022. This is Mike Delisio. Thanks again for listening.